After five rounds of voting, the Virginia GOP convention has announced its winner, Stacey Abrams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Real Force. Democrats are set to take control of the U.S. Senate, House, and the White House. This will go down as one of the most progressive administrations in American history. God willing, everything is on the table. You now can pass things without a filibuster threat. That's right. Oh, you'll regret this, and you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome, welcome to Tuesday's episode of the Variety Program. I loved it, Duncan, that it, it brings out a very, very, I would say, fair critique of the way that the administration of the election in Virginia has gone. Not great. I, I, I'm really just curious how Stacey Abrams was going to balance her work as the governor of <laughs> Georgia with all also now being the governor. Yeah, Virginia. we should clarify, especially to Stacey Abrams, that's a joke because now she's not going to concede. She's yeah. absolutely not going to concede that race. Well, the long and the short of it is it looks like Glenn Youngkin is going to be the nominee here. Yep. Glenn Youngkin won. Um wasn't a typical primary. They called it an unassembled Virginia GOP convention with with all these satellite voting locations. Basically, ranked choice process where they counted the votes round by round, eliminating the lowest vote getter, and then distributing the votes of the eliminated candidate based on their voters' next choice on the ballot. And this went on and on until there were only two candidates left. The final two nominees available were glenn youngkin and pete snyder just guess what program those two were on yeah i mean i i think that's what this comes down to is people are going to say elections come down to turnout and all this other bullshit the fact is folks elections come down to who shows up on ruthless if you want to win that primary you're going to show up here if it's a gubernatorial race senate race in the midterm heck presidential you know the road to the white house the road to every elected office goes through ruthless that's the process now, folks. <laughs> well, you know, we've never been shy about taking victory laps, but but this one, I think we actually deserve a little bit of credit because when we had Pete on and when we had Glenn on, nobody was interested in the Virginia gubernatorial race. Nobody, yep. right? Everybody was still kind of mired down in the middle of February and March, but we knew that this was going to be a big deal. And we thought that those two were the most talented candidates in a field of four or five. And so we put them on the program, asked them some questions, got to the audience, got to know them a little bit. And lo and behold, the cream rose to the top. And there was also a vote for AG and, and Lieutenant Governor as well. It was basically like a delegate process where you, you know, went through to, to register to be a delegate. Just very convoluted. I, personally, I think they should just move to a primary. You yeah. know, I mean, we're not exactly winning a ton of statewide races in Virginia. And so, you know, I think maybe what would get the party more excited and the is, you know, having more people vote in our primaries. You got to so, get the people going. Let just let the people vote in the primary. <laughs> it's just such a ridiculous process. I am not a fan of it. Well, speaking of processes, uh, Smug, your hero, is in a lot of trouble. Bob Baffert has been banned from Churchill until further review. His horse. Medina Spirit, the winner of the Kentucky Derby, uh, was a cheater. Well, I don't think that's cheating. Number one. <laughs> number one. I mean, I mean uh, so so Trump had this great press release about it where he called the horse a junkie. 
because they've had it some so number one that that's fucking that's effing awesome i love i love that characterization to begin with like it took me a while to stop laughing that was brilliant number two i say do it do it we should shoot up these horses that like you go to your grocery store that chicken you buy beef pork you know you know what they're shot up with man like what what those animals they're like roided beyond belief like you see this footage from 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 chicken farms it's like uh you know a chicken is essentially just like breasts and thighs you know like it's an instagram influencer of a chicken at this point <laughs> and we're mad that we, we can't like you know give a couple pills to the horse be like go get him unbelievable let him let him we should we should enjoy the sport if the horse can take it shoot him up let's go just just so we're clear you've come out in favor of performance enhancing drugs on horses yeah (laughs) and liken them to chickens (laughs) hey listen if if you can shoot an animal up and get the results you want that's exactly what we're here to do you know that the product is the horse that you're racing Proxies the chicken that you're eating. Got to do what you got to do. We could have like organic horse races, and it's like, okay, fine. You know, we, we've got we've got open range horses or whatever you want to call. Them. Your take is, or Bob we can have the real deal. We can have a sport where it's like, hey, you got to be in it to win it. Shout out Bob if it's true. Shout out Bob if it's not true. You know, I still I still think he's the best at the game. <laughs> wow. Or Peta is gonna cancel the shit out of you. <laughs> Junkie horse. Incredible, dude. Incredible. All right. right. Well, over the weekend, it was Mother's Day. I don't know about you fellas, but there was only a couple of occasions when I was able to jump online when I was sort of waiting for kids to get ready and the the kind of thing. And I saw just an amazing amount of um, lib hate of Mother's Day. Are you picking this up? It's it's shameful, dude. So typically, I like to spend holidays, you know, talking with, with, with like mother's day for me means you're t- you're spending the day pretty much talking to your mom you know enjoying the day that it's meant for but of course you've got like left-wing twitter i got so like i'm always inundated with dms but like i just had this mountain of dms of like can you believe how insane this is that they're attacking liz brunig who you know ideologically she she's she's left-wing i'm right-wing that's fine uh but she was essentially just like, I'm happy to be a mother on Mother's Day and just got attacked. <laughs> attacked. Like, that's where we've gotten. That's just what we've gotten. Garbage humanity. Just a garbage humanity. <laughs> and like, the whole thing, the premise apparently is she wrote an article that infuriated many, you know, folks on the left. The title of the article, folks, is I became a mother at 25, and I'm not sorry I didn't wait. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> they attacked that outrage outrage how dare you ma'am <laughs> on mother's day on mother's day they attack her for this progressives are so broken you know i mean imagine thinking that first of all imagine thinking that a proud mother is somebody worth attacking on mother's day yeah it, it was like the examples that i were sent i was sent um you had that example, Duncan, right? That you found. What? What? What was the author? Uh, Jill Filipovich. Yeah, she wrote on, on on Mother's Day. I want to hear more men and women who regret having children at all. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. It's like, look, I I I understand the click economy. You know that you need to have some hot takes to countervail 
the rest of what people do just just to get people outraged or whatever. But it's like, just can we have Mother's Day? Can we just from the same people who brought you birthing people? Listen here, birthing person. (laughs) There's an entire day to celebrate you. (laughs) There's an entire cottage industry in media where the basic assumption is, hey, this thing that you like, actually, it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, listen, uh, having a family and having any joy in your life, absolute privilege. You should be ashamed. Like the fact that it's become birthing person, like it, 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 it's a complete like attack on just the basics of society, like having a functional family, being happy. All these things are now unacceptable to the left. It's unreal. It's truly remarkable. And I can't tell whether we're all just being trolled by a couple of these people. And then there's just like blind idiots that, that follow, or if they actually really think that, like, is that person that Jill, whatever her name is, she's such a broken individual that she wants to attack moms on mother's day by, by hearing stories of people who regret being parents. Yeah. I, I mean, I think like when we're, we're talking about this, I think Duncan had a great point. This is absolute projection. You've got folks who are just okay. like, who are, who are angry because they're living in a very expensive place in Brooklyn, trying to eke a living, writing these kind of like, you know, brainworm takes. And they're like, wow, this person seems to be happy. They have a family and like a functional relationship. This is, this is an outrage. I can't stand someone else being happy. It's and, and more right to take. And even, even like more than that, it's really, all of this stuff is really just an attack on parents who decide to stay home and raise their kids. Yep. You know, yep. and and in a lot of you know communities, especially on the coasts where the cost of living is so high, that's something that's, you know, frankly it's out of reach for a lot of two-parent families where both parents, you know, do have to work uh, in order to to make a living. And so, you know, they're I think in some ways kind of resentful the fact that there are a lot of people in this country who who can make the choice to stay home and and raise children. And so they constantly have to basically attack that as something that isn't inherently good. And I think, you know, it is it is good. Of course, it's good. I mean, good Lord, you don't need to be a social scientist to come to the conclusion that having a couple of parents that love their children is good for the child. You know, I mean, look, I don't know where this comes from. I truly don't. Like, I, I, I'm sure there are a lot of bad things that have happened in the lives of people who come to the conclusion that uh, parenting is bad and that moms are are bad. And I, I just, it. What sucks about it is you look at some of the 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 Twitter accounts that this woman has posted this stuff for. That she's got like a couple hundred thousand people that are following this nonsense. I mean, I really want to someday get into like the based episode where, where it's my unifying theory of the left is that these people just like hate society and civilization. Like I saw this other great post where it was like, parents are upset. These are, these are like atheist parents upset that their child has discovered veggie tales and now like uh, loves yeah. and has discovered and loves God. And they're like, how do I make this stop? It's like, what? Like you look at it across the spectrum. It's like, okay, families are bad. Uh, God is bad. Like the complete breakdown of any sort of like, family or church or any organization or institution that can like, you know, be cohesive for, for, for communities and, and, and for society, they just want an attack. And now we're left where like the, their only religion in God is essentially just like left-wing thinking. Like the mask is, is the mask is no longer 
about trusting the science. It's now ideology for these people because it's all they have left. You know, they've already destroyed a belief in family. They've already destroyed a belief in church. It's like, well, all we can cling to now is mask. Mask means I'm good. And, and government. Yeah, right? totally. That's it. I mean, it's just like the altar of government, essentially what they've broken us down to. Well, anyway, it's all an outrage, but we'll, we'll uh, move on. We got a lot of great feedback from Thursday's episode. Uh, really appreciate it. We put some extra thought into it, tried to approach it with a, um, you know, sort of a more thoughtful take than what we were seeing out in the media uh, about the, the Liz Cheney situation, which this week apparently will come to a head on Wednesday, uh, one way or another. Elise Stefanik is the endorsed challenger to try to take her place as the House Republican Conference chairman. We'll follow that, but the core message that we had as a program was that all of this was framed by the media in a way to try to bait Republicans into talking about the only issue that cuts against them in today's environment, right? Mm-hmm. Everything else that Democrats are doing, the public is not on their side. We are, we are gaining huge ground on the, on, the, uh, on the ground in terms of our election status, except when we talk about 2020. Right. Yeah. And you're baited into that conversation. It's like uh, on the heels of us winning big in Texas. Uh, I know Elena Plot just had this article that dropped in, in uh, New York magazine talking about how, OK, in the wake of, of, of last year's election, you're seeing Republicans just super energized, winning every race since. And in, instead of paying attention to the voters, you have people like Liz Cheney who just take the bait from the media you, they, they need to be listening to the voters, not to the media. I think that's the main problem here. Like Republican voters are energized. The conservative base is energized. Listen to them. Listen to right. them. Don't listen to these like news show bookers. Like, congrats, you're on a Sunday show. You don't need to be, you don't need to worry about what that Sunday show uh, green room is telling you matters. You need to listen to what the voters and the conservative base say matters. And, and they, they're worried about Biden's agenda. Like Biden is running ham right now. They're, they're really trying to do some crazy stuff here. Like the cost of everything is going up, right? Unemplo- like you see this anemic jobs report because unemployment pays better than a job. And they want to, they want more, more, you know, uh, uh, stimulus to go out so that the people become more dependent on the government, which is causing prices to go up even more. It's this like vicious cycle of dependency where, where the same weekend you see this report out of Venezuela where like 78% of the people are now in extreme poverty conditions. And, and, and that's, that's, that's the angle, you know, Biden's agenda is essentially just government dependency. And, and at a time like this, when we have issues that we can win on, when the conservative base is energized to take the bait from the media and care about what, what media talking heads are saying instead of what the base is saying, I mean, hey, you're gonna get what's coming. I, I have to give a shout out to Joe Wolfson at, at Fox who pointed this out, he, he, he wrote about that episode we did last week where he said, um, you know, quote, ruthless podcast says media uses Liz Cheney to push, to, to push GOP civil war narrative. CNN needs this to fill airwaves. And he did it. He tweeted this out as a side by side with a tweet uh, from Brian Stelter, who said GOP in disarray, question mark, not on GOP TV. This week, Liz Cheney was mentioned 300 plus times each on CNN and MSNBC. <laughs> Fox News, just 48 times per TV eyes. And it's like, you don't have to read between the lines. Yeah. The media tells you exactly what they're trying to do. It's like, do. you gave the game up right there, man. They you gave, gave up the game, the game up. 
Right. They're, te- they're just telling on themselves consistently, right. right? Over and over and over again, the framework for the Liz Cheney controversy is she's talking, she's telling the truth about the election, right? She's telling the truth. And as we covered in the episode, that's irrelevant. They had a vote on that back in January and she actually won. That's not the problem. The problem is, is she's talking about what happened three, four months ago. Nobody's interested in three, four months ago. We got to fight for our lives on our hands with $6 trillion of taxpayer money going up in smoke, inflation that is about to be through the roof, huge social engineering questions going on. If you're focused on what happened 90 days ago and not what's happening 90 days from now, I think the Republican Party is going to turn the page on you no matter who you are. Yep, yep. I think that's gonna that's a, that that's that's my takeaway from this is uh, I think Liz Cheney made a huge mistake. What a what a, what an unforced error. Uh, I, I have a feeling she's gonna have to pay for for this mistake of listening to the media instead of listening to the voters and listening to the base. And uh, you know, I, I I think you're gonna see what you get as a result of that. And she's gonna get a result of that sooner than she she may like. So so, but I think one of the threads that pulls through all of these issues, which Cheney got tripped up by. I mean, you hear basically every Republican on the Sunday shows get tripped up by is that the media tries to hide under a rubric of, of Trump and, and sort of extrapolate out motivations for Republicans based upon their theory of the case, injecting Trump into it. Right. So we know that the media actually has to have Trump in the headline. Otherwise, their circulation goes down. And we've seen everything from New York Times, Washington Post, all these places, huge cuts in the circulation. CNN, what are they down? 50, 70% or something like that? Yeah, I mean, they're getting crushed. Right? So they're just trying to squeeze a little bit more blood out of the stone. And the one that I find the most jarring, honestly, the one that's, that's hardest for me to wrap my head around the narrative that they're trying to force is what they're doing with these election reforms state by state. You notice Florida last week came out with their own election reforms and it's immediately like uncritically reported as the restrictions on voting, right? Same thing with Georgia. We see the same thing in Texas, basically every state that's doing any sort of legislating on voting. It's, it's called a restriction uncritically without delving into the analysis at all. But, but here's the, the interesting subtext to all of it and how the media and Democrats are trying to sell that framework. Mm-hmm. I saw in a New York Times piece that wasn't about this. It was actually about um, how red is getting red or blue is getting bluer. People aren't living sort of in bipartisan communities anymore. It's sort of self-segregating politically. And it was kind of an interesting piece. The, the guy writing it wasn't particularly political, but he told on himself with this paragraph in the middle of it. Listen to this artwork. More than half of Republicans believe that last year's election was stolen from Donald Trump. Rather than reject claims of election fraud, Republican lawmakers have used the premise that the election was stolen to justify restrictions on voting. It's, now, a, it's, re, it's art. It's a, a sentence of art because it contains like six assumptions. <laughs> all fact. of which are not true. All of which are not true. Right? I mean, <sighs> we really honestly, we, we should have like a, a, a ruthless special explaining 
what happened in elections, the history of like the stolen election thing. Cause here, here, here's my belief. The problem with, with last year's election is we had these like self-made Kings of governors who decided to impose in, in the summer and the spring of 2020, these, these rules on how voting is going to happen and how long ballots are acceptable and how you can cure ballots and, and ballot harvesting and all these shenanigans that the issue was that it happened in the spring and in the summer before the election. And yeah, now Dem saw, Oh, Oh yeah. Ballot harvesting, ballot curing. Yeah. That stuff is great. Uh, uh, even though the pandemic is ending, we got to keep this in place. So any change from them having these like uh, governors, you know, single-handedly rewriting the rules, they want to keep those in place. The, even though the pandemic's over, they want to still keep those in place. Well, that's, so I, that's, I, I, that's what these restrictions are about. Is right. Folks, right. the pandemic's over. We don't need, we never needed that if you ask me, but we don't need these kind of like rules that these Dems wanted. We, we, I feel like we've made a mistake. The Republican Party has made a mistake in a, in just basically not fighting on that word restrictions as, as hard as we should have. Yep. And just sort of like accepting that as the narrative that restriction restrictions compared to what? Exactly. To, to, to the 100 year pandemic that we just we just made all of these arbitrary emergency orders. Yeah. I mean, having a monitored Dropbox, that's a restriction. Get out of here. Well, that's yeah. but that's the, the other thing that they've blown right by, right? The laws on the books, on the books, are much more restrictive than the laws that are passed right. in all states, right? There was no provision for expanded early voting. Now there is, mm -hmm. right? There were no such thing as drop boxes. Now there is. Yeah. There's exactly. mail-in voting. Now there is. There's extended hours. There's all kinds of different things that have been amplified from where they were in 2020. They just don't have a pandemic emergency exception to them. So therefore, they're called restrictions on voting. I mean, what absolute trash nonsense. And the, the, the fact that they then inject a motive for this, that it's not about good governing. What it's about is a belief that the election was stolen and it was a fraud, which is why they're perpetrating this unjust new restriction on the American people. I mean, it's complete nonsense. Yeah, that's why I, I really want a full episode on this because you look at what happened, where the Dems were at, where they're saying, oh my God, Bush stole the election in 2000. There's even conspiracy theorists on the left that say, oh, four was also stolen. Uh, something about a guy in a plane crash, like the, the, the blue and on is alive and well, like in 2016, they're telling you that there's over 50% of Democrats who think Russia stole the election. We're not talking about that. This is a media injection of this, like, Ooh, Republicans are bad. Wow. That, that letting them frame the argument as restrictions. When the fact is that all these States, it's going to be easier to vote in upcoming elections than it was when Barack Obama was elected in uh, 2008 and reelected in 2012. That tells you what this is about. They want to keep all this like ballot harvesting, ballot curing, and all this stuff that these governors put into place during a pandemic forever, forever, forever. I mean, they, they don't even want you to have an ID at the polls, right? Yeah. I mean, if you don't want somebody to produce an ID at the polls, then you don't want a fair election. I mean, I saw, I'm just going to say it. You just don't. I saw a really great tweet on this where someone, someone said that uh, India requires uh id to go vote right and it has uh it had like 700 million people 
vote in an election in a country that has far more poverty and, and people who are illiterate than, than in the United States, yet the left is trying to frame it as, oh my gosh, this is unfair to people who can't afford an ID. Everybody can afford an ID. I mean, let me tell you, if you need government assistance, they give you an ID for the government assistance. Like, this is not the issue. Like, they're trying to create these false narratives. Don't take the bait. This isn't government. This isn't restrictions on voting. This is trying to enforce rules that are on the book. Common sense. Common sense. Like Rule, it, rules, it, it, rules that 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 huge majorities of voters across the political spectrum support. Yep. yep. They support voter ID, <laughs> but 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 none of the journalists want to talk about any of that. You know, the mm-hmm. same the same journalists who will say, "Yeah, Joe Biden can't get a single Republican to to vote for one of his measures." It's still bipartisan because look, there's Republicans who support it, there's independents who support it, and all of these polls. In that circumstance, it's bipartisan. But when we talk about election reforms that are broadly supported across the political spectrum by Democrats, Republicans, independents, things like voter ID, nope, suddenly it's not bipartisan when the media reports. It's restrictions. It's restrictions. But it's it's overtly partisan if you follow this stuff logically, right? So this article that I quoted out was written after the Florida reforms, right? The motive, as this author says, is rather than to reject claims of election fraud, Republican lawmakers have used the premise that the election was stolen to justify restrictions on voting. Now, why the hell would Ron DeSantis believe that the Florida election was stolen? Right. Why would, why, why would he think that? If you're a Republican in Florida, it's worked out pretty well the last couple of cycles, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, so number one, shout out Ronnie D. I mean, this is an example of what happens when you have someone listening to voters and not listening to the media, and look how mad they are at him about it. Look how mad they are at Ronnie D. The media is doing everything they can to cancel and destroy this guy. Like this, A lot of statistics I like to bring up, especially after you've seen this assault on Ronnie D, the sustained attack on him, because they know he's crushing it down there. Before the pandemic, the guy had something like, close to 70% approval rating in Florida. He had yeah. like a, a, a above 50% among uh, uh, people of color of both parties in Florida, right? The, the guy was clearly like absolutely crushing it. And now they're like, holy moly, we've got, we've got Biden, who's essentially just like, uh, I mean, the guy is clearly not all there. In my opinion, many people are saying. And Ronnie D listening to voters absolutely on every issue, on every issue, he's listening to voters and he's delivering. And the media is like, okay, guys, this is it. We got we to gotta focus in on him. It, it, it's so true. But, but contrast that. So he takes a rash now for quote unquote voting restrictions, which actually allowed far greater latitude for voting than was previously on the books, as we just mentioned. Yep. Compare and contrast that with Kentucky, where there's a Democratic governor that has much more significant voting restrictions that were put into place. And it's applauded as this like bipartisan victory. Take, I, I urge anybody, take what happened in Kentucky on a point by point basis, go down to Georgia, go to Florida, go to all these other places. You tell me what voting is more restrictive. But one is a bipartisan pathway to expand access to the polls because it's a Democratic governor. And the other is a restriction on voting because it's a Republican governor. But in the end, what this is all about is actually happening this week, being marked up in the Senate, is a, an attempt to try to pass Democrats HR1. It's trying to have a federal takeover of all of these states 
So you can have ballot harvesting, no ID, uh, rigged FEC, all these, all these just absolute nonsense democratic proposals that they've had for decades in one big package that they can point at these states and be like, they're restricting voting. We need federal, federal government help now. Yep. It's people watch this stuff, man. It's not, it's not enough to ignore it. You can't, you can't get caught up in taking the bait and have a, a debate about whether or not this is about Trump or 2020. It's not. If you ever want to win an election again, plug in because it's happening. And, you know, so to get to, uh, on Ronnie D specifically, uh, Whitlock, Matt Whitlock, if you don't follow him, it's Matt Diz Whitlock on, on Twitter. Great, great guy. Uh, he had an amazing thread calling out all this BS where you see uh, uh, CNN says Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signs a restrictive voting bill into law. Axios, Justin, at an event banning access for all local media except Fox News, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a controversial election law that imposes sweeping new restrictions on voting. Then you had New York Times breaking news. Florida passed a host of voting limits in one of America's most critical battlegrounds. And then you have Washington Post, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signs new voting restrictions. The talking points went out. The talking <laughs> points went out. All those are arguing that the bill restricts mail-in voting. That's not true. It requires voters to request a mail-in ballot. That's not hard. That's not hard, folks. It requires voters to use an ID to request ballots. Again, that's overwhelmingly popular in every poll you will ever see. And they're calling this restrictive. They're calling that restrictive. It's incredible. It's just pure fiction writing, right? <laughs> and they're still going to have drop boxes. Like that's another lie that they're like, oh my God, all these, all these drop boxes are being taken away. Number one, the drop boxes weren't there before the pandemic but they're still going to have drop boxes available. And they're like, oh, 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 this is still restrictive. It's insane. Don't take the bait on that. You know, when you vote by mail and you get your, your ballot and they, they say you have to go to a, a drop box. Do you know what a drop box actually is? It's a freaking mailbox. Yeah. It's a yeah. mailbox. You can, you can stick it in your mailbox and put the flag up. That's all the access problem you need. Solved, guys, solved. And, and that's the thing is, number one, they know because this is their click economy. They know folks aren't going to go into the fine print. So they can say essentially whatever the talking points that the Dems feed them. They're like, oh, this is restrictive. Okay. Like you see the use of the same word over and over, over again. They're like restrictive, restrictive, restrictive. That's how we're going to roll with it. None of them say Florida's going to have increased, you know, uh, voter and ballot access than before the pandemic. Totally. Think, I mean, that's the fact. That's, that's the, the fact. fact. That's the fact. Listen, there's a lot of crazy stuff. I saw this one too, uh, turning the page a little bit. There is a, an AP piece that I noticed that said, new White House panel aims to separate science and politics. I thought, mm -hmm. oh boy. Yeah, here we go. Oh boy. Anytime somebody says that they're separating politics from something, you know that they're doing the exact opposite. Perfect. That's the exact hell. <laughs> So this thing says, this is literally the AP lead. I'm not making this up. Eager to turn the page on the Trump years, the Biden White House is launching an effort to unearth past problems with the politicization of science within the government and tighten scientific integrity rules for the future. <laughs> these, are the, these are the people that changed the CDC school guidelines because they talked to the teachers unions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, oh, that's, that's not politicalization of science at all. The CDC, say that again, the CDC. The CDC, the Center for Disease Control, 
changed its guidelines for school reopenings after talking to the teachers unions. There are kids who are still not in school in America right now because they politicize science. And the harm on them is immeasurable, immeasurable, immeasurable. They're um, telling people that you got to wear two masks outside, but no, you know what? It's the science. It was it's like uh, when, when Duncan was over in my place, we're watching Tucker and they showed this video from a track meet where this like, uh, what was she a high school athlete or something? I think she'd already been vaccinated. They're having her wear a mask while she's outside running this track meet and she straight collapses. She collapsed to the finish line. line. Yeah. Insane. Insane. Like the CDC, uh, until like uh, they get forced to backtrack, they're like, well, I mean, once you're vaccinated and you're outside, folks, this isn't rocket science. But still, but still, like it's like I said, it's become the new religion for the left is the mask. Like you see all the tweets where they're like, I, I'm, I'm still wearing my mask even though I'm vaccinated and outside just so people won't think I'm a Republican. Okay, that's exactly what I mean by like politicization of science. And then you like Biden, when he wore his mask outside, to tell people the CDC guidance that you don't have to wear a mask outside when you're having a vaccine. And he doesn't know why he was like, uh, so that I wouldn't wear a mask when I go back inside. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, that's not a stutter. It's just something's wrong upstairs. I just get a kick out of the fact that everybody covers this uncritically, right? Like, how do you write that? Oh, you know, actually what they're trying to do is separate science from politics. That's yeah. what they're doing here. Yeah. Right. Like, meanwhile, your kid is sitting next to you in your home on their computer, on their Zoom, trying to learn, you know, while you're yapping on the phone, can't get into class, despite the fact the CDC and everybody declared last October that their coronavirus posed no risk to their in-person learning. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it's, 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 I guess they just have a greater appreciation of science. And I mean, it's really heartbreaking that, like, this is coming from the Associated Press, which was supposed to be, like, the gold standard of unbiased, straight-up news. There's a direct quote that said, there's little doubt that the American death toll from COVID-19 was far higher than it needed to be and that the administration's early unwillingness to take the issue seriously, to listen to and act on the advice of experts and to communicate clearly contributed substantively to that death toll. Actually, actually, folks, the death toll was far less because of Operation Warp Speed that told the experts, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're going to accomplish something by getting the vaccine made here. Look at the comparison to what's happening in Europe. You know why Europe is still a mess? Because they tried taking the approach that the Dems wanted of being like, okay, we will just like uh, create a socialized marketplace and we'll be able to just like buy the vaccine. No, now they're fighting over it. Like, like Germany is a mess right now. Like the most industrialized with their stuff together country over there is an absolute mess getting a vaccine. I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up, Smug. I saw, you know, this is sort of one of those back burner issues that people haven't really been paying attention to, but the Biden administration announced that they were going to basically give away the intellectual property of these vaccines last week. Mm-hmm. And the underlying, I mean, the motive of it is that they don't want pharmaceutical companies basically to have intellectual property, period, right? They want the government to own all of this stuff. And so the fact that some of these uh, private companies have actually had R&D that couldn't be funded through the National Institutes of Health have prompted their concern about just sort of taking it, mm-hmm. right? But the funny thing is what you mentioned, when it comes to the coronavirus, because America had a free market system set up yep. with the pharmaceutical companies, forever what you think of pharmaceutical companies, right? But their ability to innovate with research and development and actually come up 
with a vaccine is why this country is largely vaccinated and every other country is not. That's why. Uh, so Trump's approach was so brilliant, so brilliant. The guy was never going to get credit for this. He saved, I'm telling you right now, globally, he saved millions of lives with the approach he took. He's never going to get credit for it. But it, it, it's almost like a, 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 if you need to get a patio made on your house, what are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to look up a bunch of contractors. You're going to say, okay, whoever's got the best price and can get the job done, listen, I'm cutting you a check. That's the deal. That's the way it works. Trump essentially tells these pharmaceutical companies, listen, you guys want an order for 100 million doses? You make a vaccine. And, and, and the left and the New York Times, everyone writes these articles. Many experts saying it's impossible a vaccine's going to be developed. You tell a pharmaceutical company, we'll put in an order for 100 mil if you get the job done. Yeah, they will find a way. And what happened? They found a way. They got that vaccine made. Trump ended up like Operation Warp Speed could be the most brilliant thing he's accomplished. Like humanity has benefited tremendously from this. And it's because he took that approach. Meanwhile, you see the rest of the world that, that took the like socialized group buying approach, like fingers crossed, let's see what happens. I think this may work. It didn't work. It didn't work. Operation Warp Speed is what worked. And now the Biden that's administration what should be, that's is, what is trying to turn on that. That's what people should be talking about. I mean, what they should be talking about is we, we now have an empirical example of nationalized, socialized healthcare and the failures of it. Mm -hmm. An empirical example in real time when there was a medical, critical medical emergency globally. How did your system handle it, right? How, how did we do? In the end, you've got a bunch of people vaccinated in the United States of America, and we have a choice of whether we can get the vaccine or not. Many people have chosen to get the vaccine. I think that's a good idea, but we had that choice. Yeah, I, I, mean, I noticed the people that believe in Medicare for all and doing away with private insurance and private healthcare, um, we're fine getting in line and taking one of these American pharmaceutical companies' vaccines. Where's AOC's vaccine from Cuba? Did she take the Cuban right? vaccine? Yeah. Or did she take one of the American ones? I'm just curious, since in their eyes, our, our system's such a failure. Yeah, what about the Chinese vaccine? How many people signed up for that one? Man, this, the, there are some horror stories about that one. Let me tell you. And the Russian some vaccine? Horror stories. I mean, you know what? I actually heard that the Russian one is, is decent. Well, I don't think you'd hear anything else. Would you? I mean, I'm not going to take it, but hey, <laughs> many you people think tell you if it was if it was bad. Yeah, right. <laughs> but get an arm growing out of the middle of their forehead and be like, "No, nah, it's great. Everybody loves it. Have another vodka." But I mean, truly, like Operation Warspeed could be one of the most significant accomplishments of a, of a U.S. president in our lifetime, and its effectiveness. I mean, uh, I think we're getting close to, or, or we're just about to pass something like fifty percent of. Uh, U.S. adults have gotten at least one shot. We're yeah. nearing, the, like, uh, uh, apparently the number in Israel, when they hit like 60% of people vaccinated, uh, they noticed that coronavirus cases just like fell off a cliff, that like that was the magic number. Like we might not even have to hit like the 75% some people were kicking around. So, I mean, and, and plus I have a feeling that a lot, of, a lot of cases of coronavirus were unreported, like people didn't show the symptoms or whatever necessarily. And they already have that kind of immunity to it. So I have a, you know, we're, we're about to turn the page on this and, and, and Trump isn't going to get any of the credit that he deserves. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, in fact, in fact, the opposite. Now you got Joe Biden taking credit for it. Isn't that and nice? What's it's so funny is, you know, we, we, there was this jobs report that came out yeah. um, last week, which was absolutely horrendous. And one of Let's the big, 
yeah, one of the big pushbacks was, well, look at all these jobs we created in the first quarter. And it's like, well, you didn't really create those those jobs that 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 have come back are are because of two things. Number one, you shut down the American economy for COVID. And now that we're starting to reopen this country, the governors like like Abbott in Texas, who you said were Neanderthals, Joe Biden, you called right. them Neanderthals for opening back up at 100 percent. They're creating the jobs. <laughs> number one. Number two, you wouldn't have any of these jobs if it wasn't for Donald Trump and those three vaccines. Yep. And Again, you know, to contrast, you had Kamala who said, I refuse. You know, I'm very skeptical about taking a vaccine that's been created under the Trump administration. And now they're trying to steal credit. Like, look at these people. Shameless, shameless people. This like absolute bear of a, of a jobs report comes out where uh, on CNBC, when they read it, they're like, is this, is this number right? Is this missing a zero? That's it. Turns out, folks. That if the government tries to create these policies to incentivize choosing unemployment over working, people will choose unemployment. I mean, they're making a rational decision here. Like if they can make more money by not working than working, they're not going to work. And so you have tons of small businesses across this country. I saw a, a, a guy on the news who I think he runs a restaurant. And he told he told friends, he told family, he told his employees. He was like, listen, if you can find me more people who can work at this restaurant, I'll give, I'll give him a thousand dollar signing bonus. He got zero applicants, zero applicants. It's because, just... and, and, and now in this moment when small businesses can't get people to work who are trying to serve those who are fortunate enough to survive this pandemic can't find people to work. And what is the idea that, that the Dems and the Biden administration is presenting? Maybe we should, maybe we should number one, tax those businesses more. And number two, you had, uh, so Stephanie Rule from MSNBC oh. puts out this tweet where, I mean, uh, uh, you know, shout out to all the minions who tagged this for me because this is, this is quite the take. So uh, Stephanie Rule tweets, why is it that the unemployment benefits are too generous rather than the pay offered by employers too low? Pay more money, find more workers. If margins are so thin that you cannot increase pay without passing it through uh, passing it through or losing customers, your business model doesn't work. Yeah. So now these small businesses have to compete with the government who, who's got a money printer. And number two, that government is trying to tax them even more. And then those like Tim Carney dunked on her so hard uh, where, where he was like, okay, so uh, now you're telling small businesses who can't a- afford to outbid the government, their margins are too small as composed uh, as compared to what, you know, the Comcast corporation, which pays you Stephanie rule. Like, is that it? Like, that's become the damn choices. They're like, I pick Amazon over mom and pop. And hey, you guys are going to have to deal with it. And guess what? We're going to make you pay more taxes than Amazon pays. But hey, folks, uh, this, this, is, this is fair. It's the abject failure of liberal governance and liberal economic policy at every level. At every level. And, and you really do not have to be very smart to figure out how this happens. Like you said, Smug, people are making rational economic decisions. When your life has not substantially changed in terms of your income because of the subsidies that are giving to you, despite the fact that you haven't gone to work in a year, why are you going to go back to work? You're not. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's just, and that's not saying anything about the motives or the intentions of the people who have chosen not to go to work. But here's the other thing that get me about, about Stephanie Rule and, and liberals who are just blind to how business works. Apparently, they're so insulated that they haven't been to a small business or haven't 
talked to somebody who's in a middle lower income bracket or don't don't associate with anybody outside of this like metropolitan elitist multimillionaire club because if you do talk to any of these people they'll tell you exactly what's happening right i'll, I'll go to my dry cleaner or i'll go down uh, the street to the hardware store or you know any of the restaurants that are in my neighborhood and you'll talk to them you'll say hey, I noticed there's a sign out front that says $500 if you fill out an application to work here. I mean, you have to be blind not to see what's happening. We are paying people not to work and the economy is suffering as a result. And these employers are not gonna be around forever. You're right, the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks, they're fine. They're not gonna have a problem. But your hardware store, they have a real problem. And you know, that's the other like uh, icing on the cake for the Stephanie Rule take is before she was uh, on MSNBC, she actually worked in finance doing sales for credit derivatives, I think at Credit Suisse. So it's like, yep, she has no idea, no clue. Just, just to put a finer point on it. It's like, why can't mom and pops just trade credit derivatives? <laughs> <laughs> for, our, for our listeners, this job jobs report showed that 266,000 jobs were created in April. A um, a figure that shocked many on Wall Street. Um, you know, they had been estimating about a million jobs, um, which is wow. you know a a big failure. Um, it's down from seven hundred seventy thousand that were created in March. So, I mean, obviously, there's a reason why people are staying home. I mean, this is the thing I I, I really want to get into is. Bidenomics. You're seeing Bidenomics, the Biden economy, right in front of your eyes. You're pumping trillions of dollars into stimulus, into what'd be a rip roaring economy. And uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend like I know what's what's going to happen next, folks. But I think you see right in front of you, people don't want to go back to work because they're getting checks to not go to work. Um, you, you've got higher prices, and and the way that the media is pre presenting this, number one, they try just straight up denying it. Like, yeah, you're lying eyes when you go to a grocery store, when you go to a hardware store, you know, of course you're wrong. No, everyone now knows is a fact that everything is basically more expensive. But the way the media is presenting is they're saying consumers adjust to higher prices. Oh, okay. Well, that's really great. I guess, I guess. Consumers this whole thing adjust is, to. <laughs> yeah, consumers adjust. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure, you know, they just adjust to it. That's what you got to do. We've had a year of a pandemic. Just adjust higher prices. That's it. Just adjust to it. Is it well, you uh, know, I guess I guess we've adjusted to like being robbed in major cities, right? Said, price, price tax on consumer goods from processed meat to dishwashing products have risen by double digit percentages from a year ago. That's what inflation is, guys. I don't. I, I mean, I don't. What the hell are we talking about? Everybody's like, oh, well, you know, we're going to keep an eye on this. Maybe fix it with the Fred if there's if there's inflation. That's what inflation is. You know, when, when a, every house is, is like seven figures, that's what inflation is. When gas is rising, milk, bread, and anything, yeah. all this yeah. stuff yeah. is more expensive. And then these guys turn around and they're like, oh, what we need to do is pump another $4 trillion into the economy. No, 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 no. That's where this gets sideways because all of the people that you're just handing money to, to not work, and there's no productivity as a result, are also getting sweet. They're no better off ultimately because the other end is the prices are going up, right? So again, the upper middle class, your, your upper class is going to be fine. Mm -hmm. The people who received assistance are going to get pinched. And this can't go on forever. You cannot keep printing dollars, handing them out, and expecting that the services are going to be provided 
over time. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And again, that's the thing is, is you're going to see voters who have to foot the bill for this. They see their prices are going up. They see cost of living is going up. They see the government essentially ignoring them. I'm, I'm telling every, every, every elected official in this country, you better start listening to those voters. You better start listening to the conservative base because they are energized and they're going to hit those voting booths. And if you don't listen, there's a price to pay. And, and the Dems have already seen it. They've it's already exactly seen it in right. Texas. That's who we need to be listening to. That's where the focus should be. Because right now, the conservative base is super energized seeing this mess of the Biden government and these Dems. And, you know, it, 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 there's going to be an election very soon, and, and it's going to be time to pay the piper. Connect the dots, folks. It's all right there. All right. So the one thing I, I wanted, we have a great interview that's, that's coming up, but one thing I, I definitely wanted to cover because it's blown my mind, and the more I read about it, the more I'm shocked that nobody's talking about this. Um, to their credit, the New York Times posted a story last week, Ken Vogel, who, who does some good stuff over there, about this Swiss guy who has contributed over $208 million to democratic infrastructure for campaigns and election purposes. Now they do this through like nonprofits and C4s, right? But this guy has figured out a way to fund all of these organizations that turn around and make contributions to like the Senate majority fund or, you know, it's house super PAC counterpart or they run field operations or digital operations. All of these things have electoral impact. Now, of course, it's against federal law to receive foreign dollars, mm -hmm. right? But it's not against law to have a nonprofit take dollars from a foreign uh, person. And this is kind of like a passion project of, of mine is just calling out the liberal dark money because all day long, these Dems, or, or, th these Dems keep saying, oh my gosh, this is... This is Citizen United. This is Republican billionaires taking over our elections. Number one, number one uh, the billionaires were on the side of the Dems. They have been on the side of the Dems. Every metric measured in donations uh, over the last two election cycles, at least, showed the majority of billionaires support the Dems. Uh, number two, if you want to talk about uh, you know, foreign interference in elections, it wasn't Russia having you know, some memes that they posted in 2016 that Dems think that Putin showed up and rigged the election. You want to talk about foreign interference? You've got you've got a Swiss billionaire pumping two hundred million dollars into these liberal dark money groups here in the U.S. And the way that these groups operate is, as long as uh, no more than forty nine percent of their money goes to like uh, you know left wing super PACs that support Biden, that oppose Trump, that oppose Republicans, it's it, it's fine. And uh, uh, Anna Masogli, who's who's a great investigative researcher on this stuff for uh, Center of Responsive Politics. She said, uh, you don't see his name, uh, Hans-Jörg Wiss, the, the Swiss billionaire. You don't nice see his pronunciation, name. pronunciation, Smug. I give it a shot. Uh, you don't see his name showing up in FEC filings, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he hasn't poured hundreds of millions of dollars into influencing U.S. politics or policy. Folks, this is the foreign interference. You know, it, it turns out it was coming from inside the dens. So is this, <laughs> this, guy, this guy's not an American citizen? No, no. So here's, the, but this is the best part of this, Duncan. So the Times, which is rigorous about uh, fact-checking Democrats, not necessarily Republicans, but in, in Democrats, they're going to want to get their stuff right. So they asked clearly, and this guy wouldn't provide the answer, nor would any of the C4s that benefited from his cash, but they actually included a paragraph 
in the article that that said outright that they wouldn't answer the question whether they, this guy got any sort of American citizenship, which I think tells you what you need to know, right? I mean, he's not. And and they've asked several different ways and the guy won't answer the question. So, I mean, what obviously he's hiding something, but again, the democratic critique of nonprofit world was always that, you know, billionaire Republicans were funding these things, which of which there are relatively few, right? And, and Republicans really have had a much less proliferation of C4 spending than Democrats have. But now in addition to like the Michael Bloomberg's and, you know, all of the various democratic liberal progressive funders of these, now you get literal foreign interference. You literally get a guy who's a Swiss, a, a Swiss, $200 million into a presidential election. That's real money. Yeah. $132 million in anonymous money back Joe Biden compared to 22 million for Donald Trump. Wow. Yeah. 132 million liberal dark money dollars. The, the, the left, the damn dark money hypocrisy on dark money. I mean, uh, I love to give this example. Shout out to millennial other on Twitter who, who, who has to deal with having Sheldon Whitehouse as her Senator biggest hypocrite in politics. She does a great job of informing all of us about what a kook this guy is like, uh, Folks, you might remember him from the uh, 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 oh Kavanaugh hearing. Yeah, he's the yearbook he, guy. He, yeah, where he demanded to know what what boof that it meant flatulence. <laughs> he thought this is some kind of like a grand conspiracy. He always cooks up these conspiracy theories, right? And saying that oh my gosh, Republican dark money. He never once talks about this. You think he's going to say anything about this Swiss billionaire? Heck no. Heck no. He's a beneficiary of this. Incredible. The, the, the hypocrisy from folks folks like Sheldon Whitehouse from Biden. Biden's administration is now packed full of dark money alum, by the way. Uh, Jen Psaki was, was getting checks from a dark money group. And, and she's the person who's telling journalists uh, uh, what to think. Like th- the dark money is coming from inside the house. Like I said, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Well, we're going to stay on this and, and shout out to uh, former Nevada Attorney General Adam Laxalt, who is leading a group that's unearthed a whole bunch of this. We're going to stay in touch. We may even have him on the program. Yeah, we should, I, think I, you know, I actually ran into him uh, in Nevada at a Trump rally last year. Pretty, pretty, pretty good guy. We should get him on the show. Yeah, yeah, we should. This is a good thing to talk about. Uh, we've got a big interview coming up, and I wanted to lay the pretext for it. So Elaine Chow, former Trump transportation secretary, former Bush labor secretary, um, and easily the most high-profile Asian-American Republican out there, uh, we reached out to her a couple of weeks ago when Democrats were uh, on the precipice of, of pushing you know, anti-Asian-American hate legislation, which ultimately passed. But the hypocrisy by which they were they were prosecuting an argument was really truly breathtaking, and and I we reached out because I wanted to hear from her what her experience has been because I know firsthand, having been associated with her and Senator McConnell in Kentucky, that every six years there's just like an overt racist attack on their family, right? It's like oh M- Mitch is in with China, and then it's like a picture of Elaine Chao, right? Just like disgusting, totally racist stuff. But she's always put her head down and just accomplished an incredible amount of conservative goals, like really never litigated this stuff at all. She just sort of shoulders it and moves on. 
but it's gotten worse and worse. And she continues to have to deal with this stuff in like the New York Times and every liberal outlet you can imagine. So if we're concerned about anti-Asian sentiment, of which I am concerned about, then we ought to talk about it in a bipartisan way as it happens to Republicans as well as, as Democrats. And I thought she could provide an interesting voice on that. Well, great. Let's get right to it. I want to welcome to the program somebody who is near and dear to my heart and somebody who uh, has been like family to me for the last 10, 15 years, uh, former Secretary of Transportation, Elaine Chow. Welcome to the program. Thank you. You also forgot, former Secretary of Labor. I know. I actually know labor statistics. Well, we were, I wanted to get into that because okay. <laughs> you've got, you've got uh, a very substantive role at the Department of Labor, and it's a really conservative one that I wanted to get into. But I wanted to start with something a little bit more personal because I've found over the years, having been close to you, that everybody wants to talk about your job and wants to talk about, you know, you're climbing the ladder. They make presuppositions about who you are and what sort of you stand for. And, but nobody really stops to ask you your story. Right. Nobody says, you know, what's your family story? You've got an incredible one. And I just wanted to, to give you the opportunity to share it. Well, I'm an immigrant to this country. I came at the age of eight. My father had arrived three years earlier. He was not able to bring my mother and my two sisters to America because he didn't have the money nor the documentation. And so my mother was then seven months pregnant when he left for America. Wow. And it was an incredible uh, demonstration of their faith in the promise of America that he would leave and not know when the family would ever be reunited. So I came aboard uh, a freighter because that was the only passage that my father could afford. And the journey took 37 days from uh, Taiwan, Taipei to Kaohsiung, and then from Kaohsiung to you know, Tokyo Bay across the Pacific Ocean. And we arrived um, you know, on a warm, hot summer day. And I still remember how special it was to sail into um, New York Harbor and see the Statue of Liberty. That's amazing. So we, Do you remember we that? Lived the, pet, yep. the, the trip at all? I mean, I can't, I can't imagine as a parent how, how you can convince your young child that this is going to be fun in the hull of a freighter. <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, looking back now as an adult, I just think it's so frightening yeah. that my mother was the only female, adult female, on that ship with three little children. And uh, yet, you know, we were buoyed by the uh, thought of being reunited with um, my father. And even though I didn't have very much memory of him because he left when I was so young, uh, we knew that that was a happy event. So my father did not see his third daughter until she was three years old. Wow. And we lived in a small one bedroom apartment. And the initial years are very difficult. I mean, things we take for granted. I didn't know what, what a barbecue was. I didn't know what you know, picnics were, and we had our first Halloween, and we thought we were being robbed. So we, uh, people <laughs> we showed were... up at our front door, and, you know, they kept on knocking on our door. We never had, we didn't have any friends. We didn't have any family. Who was knocking at our door? We opened it up, and there'd be all these little pint-sized monsters, <laughs> and they'd be thrusting these empty bags in our faces, chanting this indecipherable chant, because we didn't speak English. <laughs> We thought we were being robbed, so we would give them 
the only thing we had, which was slices of bread, which they, of course, promptly refused and declined. So after that, we just shut the door, turned out the lights, and sat in silence. I have, and also in darkness until my father came home. I have never work. heard that story. That is fantastic. You, you actually were trick-or-treated and terrified. <laughs> Absolutely. And then trying to learn English. You know, I think this commercial is still on. Why is, this is at a time when we're trying to learn spelling. Why is relief spelled R-O-L-A-I-D-S? <laughs> Cannot understand that. And then we have great, you know, respect for our relatives. And then we would go on these picnics, you know, we would, we would hear about picnics. And then we would hear about these terrible things that they would say, people would say about their relatives, these ants, how <laughs> pesty they were and how they wanted to get rid of them. Couldn't understand that either. <laughs> Just total culture shock in every way. Of total that. culture shock. <laughs> and then how do, you, how do you make grilled cheese sandwiches without having the cheese fall between the grates? So... <laughs> We learned, but it was through the efforts. It was through, you know, the kindness of neighbors and newly made friends that we learned about America. And my father and my mother, to their credit, every weekend after long weeks work, uh, in which my father held three jobs, they would take us throughout all over New York City. That's where we were living. Mm -hmm. And to all the free sites, we would go to the free museums, uh, the free botanical gardens and uh, beaches, um, you know, um, Empire State Building, whatever was free, Empire State Building. Yeah, that's, that was free at the time too. And so we would go and see America. That's how we got acquainted with our new country. I mean, it's just amazing. And I, the thing about your family, it's just so impressive because everybody who who came here under the circumstances you just described, hit the ground and immediately got to work. I mean, everyone in your family is just an incredible success. It's, a, it's an amazing, it's an amazing- We're, we're, we're Asian Americans. That's how we were kind of programmed. <laughs> Overachievers. But I think my parents, our whole family journey is characterized by love. You know, it's a love story between my parents of two young people who under ordinary circumstances in China would never have been able to meet because she came from a very wealthy, prominent family. He came from a small farming village of 10 families. It was only because of the Chinese Civil War that threw society into total upheaval and two young people um, were able to meet, you know, like American youngsters would. So my family, my mother's family came from Nanjing, from uh, Anhui province, and they were, you know, trying to get to the cities where there was safety and security. And then that's where she enrolled in a high school outside of Shanghai. And my father, who was a big man on campus at college, came back and they were introduced through mutual friends. Now that seems okay with us, yeah. but in the old days in China, that is totally verboten. <laughs> but again, it was a breakdown of society that they were able to meet. So they were rule so they, breakers from the beginning. Yeah, so theirs was a love match. My father looked for my mother for two years. Now, how many guys can say that they gave up memories of anybody else or affections <laughs> of anybody else and looked for their soulmate for two years? That's a commitment. I, that's a commitment. So he finally found her because at that time, the island was, you know, received about 2.5 
million people over 18 months. There was a lack of dearth of jobs, of housing, of food even. And my mother, my father finally found her. And my mother said that um, she liked him because of course he was very diligent, but also because in those days when people dated, they dated after a meal. And he would come in the morning and feed her three meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then oh, send man. her home. He was trying to so, get, yeah, he, he was trying to make a good impression. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, so they got married, and, um, and he who was bereft of any support now found himself with the love of this beautiful young woman who believed that he can do anything he wanted. And with her help, he subsequently became the youngest sea captain at the age of 29. And, but you know, sea life was hard. It took him away months at a time out of the year from the family. So they decided that they had to find a better way um, to be together. And so he took a national examination, scored number one, broke all the records. And because of that achievement, he was able to go abroad to study. And where do you think they wanted to go? America, of course. Right. They never met anybody from America. They'd never been to America. I, I don't think my mother even saw white people, hmm. but hmm. they wanted to go to America. And at that time, they couldn't because my father, circling, you know, rounding out the story, he didn't have the money to bring us and he didn't have the documentation. Yeah. So he went first. It was very difficult, I'm sure, for my mother, a young woman in her late 20s. I can imagine. I pregnant can imagine. with two kids. Hmm. So that's the start of their journey. And it's a start of, um, but again, the, their story is marked by love. Love for God, love for each other, love for their family, love for America. They're real patriots. And they, they are really reflective are. of the millions and millions of stories that mark the American experience, which make our country great. Yeah, no, no question about it. And that is really like the quintessential American story. I'm glad you shared it. The, the thing that I think a lot of people are curious about your life is how, how do you get involved? Your, your family gets into business. Everybody's well-educated, works hard. You decide to go into politics. I don't go into politics. I, I don't go. I, I don't view myself as being in politics. I view myself as being in public service. That's interesting. Okay. Yes. All right. I so, want to hear more um, about that. Well, my, you know, even though we were very, we were poor and we had a very difficult time getting, you know, in our first years here in America, we were, we were buttressed by the most important uh, asset of all, and that is hope and faith. So we knew that despite the current adversities, our lives in the future would be bright. We just had no doubt that our lives in America would be so much better in the future. And so, you know, that enabled us to survive and um, to endure all sorts of sacrifices and hardships. But my parents also gave us a wonderful gift, their children, and that is a sense of responsible curiosity. They knew, this took such courage on their part because they knew there were so many opportunities in America. Opportunities that they did not know about, they cannot imagine, but they had faith that America would give opportunities to their daughters. And the only way that we can discover them is if we expanded our horizon, got outside of our small immigrant community, and um, had a sense of curiosity. Oh, that's interesting. So I was, yeah, so I was, you know, I was imbued with a love of learning 
from my parents that have been of a very early age. And so I didn't understand America. You know, I came from such a, you know, um, orderly society. I mean, the two key words in Chinese society through the 5,000 years of history are harmony and order. You ask, those are two touchstone words. Whereas in America, there's one word, freedom. Yes. So these, these words cap encapsulate the essence of a culture in a sense. And so I just didn't understand America. And even today, I am faced with that same question from immigrants who I tutor English. And um, they say, okay, you know, secretary, you've been in the inside. You can really tell us what's going on. Like, who's in charge? <laughs> and, and I would say, there's nobody in charge. And they would say, no, 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 no. I know you can't tell us, but we're close enough now as friends. You can tell us, like, who's in charge? And I would tell them, there's nobody in charge. That's the beauty of this country, that it is chaotic, and it is confrontational, and it is a contradictory. By the way, all bad words in Chinese language. Contradictory, <laughs> um, confrontational. No, it's... Chinese culture is very, um, it's, it's very, harm they strive for harmony. Yeah. So anyway, so um, then I tell them, no, no one's in charge. But the wonderful thing is, if you have an idea and you have energy, this country responds to energy. Hmm. And you, by the dint of your, the force of your ideas, can make things happen, regardless as to who you are. That's great. So, that well, certainly your life is testimony to that. The um, so the I didn't know anything. So no, I'll tell you another story. So I go. I, so I applied for the White House Fellowship because I'm totally curious about America. I don't understand how in. I was a banker, you know, with a with Citibank in New York, and whenever I did a deal, there'd be four people: the borrower, the lender, the borrower's lawyer, the lender's lawyer. We would finish the documentation and the, consummate the deal in two hours. You know, finish the deal sign the deal in two hours. Right. If I ever did a deal with the federal government, oh my God, <laughs> it would be like months. And I would have to deal with like 35 lawyers. There'll be a room full of documentation, like Title 11 financing. That's what I was kind of working on. I could not understand that. I said, how can people spend all this time Amazing. like this? And so that was what kind of prompted. So you, you wanted know, to I, figure I, it out? I mean, that's literally what it was. Yeah. You just wanted to figure out why it was taking so long. So you might as well go kind of get in the inside yeah. and figure it out. Yeah, I was curious. I love my, you know, I love my, my newfound country. I want to find out what makes it tick. And Amazing. I didn't understand. So I just wanted to find out. And so then, in, uh, in the process of that, at what point do you say, you know, all right, I kind of get a handle on this government thing and, and politics aside. I sort of relate more to the Republican Party because you did this very early oh, yeah. on in your life. I, I was so naive. I was a White House, I applied for the White House Fellowship with 54,000, you know, like applications and whatever. I get selected and I go into a meeting with this guy. He's obviously a lobbyist, but I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> so he's, he's pitching his spiel to me. And halfway through, I am shocked and I blurt out, oh my God, you want to change the law? <laughs> <laughs> like to most people, you know, to people outside of Washington, laws are to be obeyed, to be complied with. I mean, what is this? You're going to change the law? I love that. That, that is just so, so wonderful. And so, the, so how I became like right of center Republican, because I was put on research. Uh, you know, I was asked to do research for one of President Ronald Reagan's speeches. 
So I'm researching, I'm reading his inaugural speech, I'm reading his uh, first State of the Union speech, and a light bulb goes off. And it's like, oh my gosh, I actually believe all this. Because I've been kind of um, trying to find a home because I was, I was living in New York and I so disagreed with what was happening there. But also, um, the, Repu the Republican Party was different than the Republican Party, for example, of California. You're so right. as I was reading, you know, President Reagan's four principles about government, you know, monetary uh, stability, uh, that's stability, monetary policy, peace through strength, less regulations, mm -hmm. smaller government. Those were pretty simple principles, which as a, as a non-career appointee in the federal government was actually very effective because you cannot micromanage the whole federal government. Yeah. And you have to give principles that are easily understood to your quote-unquote troops so that they can implement on a daily basis. And so oh. President Ronald Reagan was terrific at that. Yeah, I was just going to say, you think that was some of the secret to his success in, in keeping broad principles and having everybody on the team sort of adhere to these pillars that he believed in? Absolutely. Absolutely. Huh. Well, it certainly so converted that's how, you. Yes. And, but that's, not, that's part of President Reagan's legacy as well. He converted lots of other people, blue-collar Democrats, for example, and so many others who were not in the, our lane uh, he was able to entice. So he really did revolutionize our country. Yeah, oh, it's just an amazing story. And I remember seeing the pictures of you at conventions. And I mean, it, it, the thing- And I always brought my family. You did? You know, because I did. Um, because that was, and I brought friends. Because when I was working my way up, it was, I never said this very much. It was very lonely. I was the only Asian American, basically, at the White House at the well, time. That's what I wanted to ask you about, because the yeah. one thing that stood out in all of those convention pictures is you were literally the only Asian person in a crowd of thousands. And, and did that, did you internalize any of that? I did not let it discourage me. In fact, I saw it as more of an, you know, encouragement yeah. that I wish more people who are um, outside mainstream America could see more of what goes on, you know, uh, in their government <laughs> and how much the government in many ways cares, not the government, but people in the government cares about governing correctly. Yeah. And that people may have different views of America, but by and large, I think most people, most office holders and officials, they want to do the right thing. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> so as your career progresses and you meet your husband and you're sort of thrust into this. And I, you know, yes. And I didn't want to, I did not want to be seeing in public with him. I didn't want to be dating a politician. Wait, wait, wait no, no, let's get, the, I'm not going to let that slide. We're, we're, let's get to the heart of that. Well, I didn't want to be a groupie. You know, <laughs> I had my own career and I, you know, I have my own name and I didn't want people to have, to interpret me in a different way if they saw me with him. Yeah. Oh, and I mean, it interestingly, and interestingly enough, even when I was Secretary of Labor, I very seldom was it ever mentioned that I was married to Mitch McConnell. A lot of people actually did not realize that I was married to Mitch McConnell. <laughs> and now, you know, when I was Secretary of Transportation, it seems that whenever they mention, the media mentions my name, they automatically put in parentheses and spout wife of Senate Majority Leader, Senate Majority Leader at that time, Mitch McConnell. 
Yeah. You know, I noticed that there was a big difference between when I first started working for Leader McConnell and how press reported your career and how they reported your career in the Trump administration, right? It was an amazing thing to sort of, for me to observe because, you know, I mean, we're supposed to, you were supposed to be in like this Me Too era where women's careers are, are supported and enthusiastically encouraged. And yet here we are 10 years removed from your previous cabinet appointment and it's covered in the most misogynistic way possible. I got to believe that was just because you were in the Trump administration. I think so too. And I'm not a victim. You know, I don't, I don't attribute, uh, you know, I, I don't blame other people, but no, I, you don't, no, you don't. No, you don't. It's to your own, to your own detriment. You never, you never talk about this stuff because you're always shouldering the load. You're the toughest person I know, but it's true. This is an objectively true thing. Absolutely. And I think the, there's fault to go all around, but uh, the media bias very clearly from the very beginning was very, very harsh. Uh, but I believe in public service because I've been a beneficiary of the wonderful um, opportunities and freedoms of this country. We would not be where we are. And conservatives do not engage in the battlefield of ideas and serve. We will, you know, we will relinquish uh, our responsibility and um you know our just we will just relinquish our we will relinquish our responsibility to help shape our country i think that's very important so that's why when i was secretary of labor and secretary of transportation i put a great deal of stock on mentoring and fostering the next generation of leaders for government in future generations you did, and that's what I was referring to at the beginning when it, I wanted to talk about your Department of Labor days because it's a little-known fact. But but you know the way that this works is administrations of either party are sort of the incubators of the next generation of leadership. Absolutely, and they and they always are. Whether you're in communications, whether you're in law, whether wherever you are, and your stewardship of the Department of Labor, I think, is very unique. And and there should be a standalone magazine piece on this in that you hired more Federalist Society lawyers at DOL than they had at DOJ. No, actually, DOJ was first. DOL was the second. We had a, a law firm. Department of Labor is a very powerful secretary, and everything is um, concentrated in the office of the secretary. So the la- second largest law firm uh, in Washington, or maybe, you know, it's, it's like and next to DOJ is DOL. Huh. So DOJ, you would expect that. Yeah, it's yeah, all lawyers at labor. DOJ. I guess you probably can't beat them. But but other than that, you, you had the yeah. second, second highest. So, and um, we also had a very principled team there. I'm so proud of them. And I, I've said from day one at the Secretary of Labor that I wanted to build a farm team for future administrations. And indeed, when um, the Trump administration came into being, uh, there were a number of um, people from the Department of Labor who went into other, who went into the current, then current um, Department of Labor. So I think that's part of our responsibility as leaders, but in, you know, to um, bring along the next generation because we need to have good governance. Yeah. But I, I believe very much, again, I, I in- wanna, mm-hmm. I wanna touch on, just as you reflect back on your, your service, it's very unique in, in so many different ways and you're a pioneer in, in many ways. 
But as you know, the last couple of months, this country's attention is focused a lot on Asian American hate and a lot on um, what you're seeing play out throughout the country. And I thought this is an interesting perspective for you because one, you've been dealing with this forever, obviously. You've been acutely dealing with this because your, your name has been in the world of politics. And I remember, and I've talked to Leader McConnell about his early campaigns when the Kentucky Democratic Party and everybody else were attacking you, basically, specifically, and, and attacking his relationship with you and trying to infer basically that there is this this china connection that somehow lessens you and lessens him as an immigrant to this country and and you just dealt with all of that right we as we just talked about you just sort of shouldered all that and never became allowed yourself to become a victim you push back and and you and you've just kind of gone on but it, it continues right and I, i'm wondering at this stage in your career, when you've accomplished so much and you look back, do you have any sort of advice for, for young women, young Asian women, young Asian men and others who are, you know, trying to follow in these footsteps and find that there is just this, this sort of hidden bias that's, that's happening just basically for what you look like? You know, it's... Um... I think if a person like myself can be attacked like this, it just shows uh, the deep-seated um, bias against uh, Chinese Americans that somehow because of the way I look. And it's, and it's partisan. The thing, the, the thing it's, that- It's very partisan. No, it's, yeah. So um, the I thing would that, say this. Okay, go ahead. I, I was, if my last name were not Chow, and if, if my last name were Smith, none of these attacks would occur. That's right. And there's, there's also a stunning lack of understanding of history. When you come from Taiwan, that is a code word for certain periods of history, for certain occurrences right. that tell without explanation what actually happened and what you know, what your philosophical um, core is. So yeah. I think um, our um, political discourse has become uh, so virulent. And uh, I think it's really Im important. Well, you so know, how, do, how do you just, let me just jump in because I, what I'm trying to get at, and I, I talked to Tim Scott about this at some level. Yes. And what I'm trying to get at, as a Republican, a prominent Republican Asian American, you don't seem to fit under the protected class that the media is concerned about, right? We, we, have, we have all of this expressed concern and legislation and everything else about the anti-Asian American bias that's happening throughout the country, which is very real. And yet at the same time, the New York Times prints a several thousand word story about you entitled, quote unquote, a bridge to China. And they also published this on June 3rd, 2019, which is the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen Square. I mean, it's and incredible. We are Americans. There is no linkage to the old country. And as mentioned, every time my husband runs for office, you know, the opposition questions my ethnicity and patriotism 
and throws it back at us. And even as you've just mentioned, the media has lodged baseless attacks against me and my family. I have firsthand experience with media bias. Unfortunately, I think it's become an ironclad law of politics that Republicans are criticized in a way that Democrats aren't. Yeah. It undercuts media credibility, you know, at a time when people are really reaching and searching for reliable sources of, of information. And I think the media's bias has played an outsized uh, role in the decline of trust in our society. Mm -hmm. I mean, a recent poll showed nearly 60% of people think that news organizations are more interested in pushing an ideology rather than informing the, the public. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, people of color take this criticism, take these attacks even more intensely. When I first married, when Mitch and I got married, for example, people asked me, what is it like to be in a mixed marriage? And I thought, well, it must be because, you know, he's white, I'm Asian, American. No, that's not what they meant at all. They said, what is it like for him to be a Republican and for you to be a Democrat? Oh, my God. What, what is that marriage like? So they naturally assume by looking at this face that I belong to them. You know, I never, I've never heard you say that before. That is really unbelievable. They thought because I'm a person of color, I must think like them. And then they find out with great surprise that I'm actually quite conservative. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, so, you've, you've been a, a role model to a whole lot of people, and I know you're going to keep up the good work on that. I do want to answer you, uh, get an answer from you on current discussion about this infrastructure situation. Yeah. Because, I mean, you're in charge of this for four years, and you're working on things like self-driving cars, and then you get Pete Buttigieg all of a sudden talking about choo-choo trains. I kind of imagine you have a perspective on what they're talking about with infrastructure and the infrastructure that you've presided over. I mean, what are they? These guys, it seems to me, are missing the boat. Yeah, I think the issues are can be distilled down to two major questions. One is, um, what should we fund? What is considered infrastructure? What is the role of the federal government in infrastructure investments? And what's the balance between funding rural versus urban projects? That's number one. Number two, how do we pay for the infrastructure spendings? Does it need to be all deficit spending? Or can we allow the private sector to help in financing some of these projects, allow oh, the yeah. private sector to participate. And the current um, infrastructure proposal being discussed does not allow the private sector to participate. And, you know, it's all deficit funding. And as your audience has heard many, many times, there seems to be a very expansive definition of infrastructure in this administration's infrastructure bill. Yes. Only 5%, 6% is real is traditionally the traditional definition of infrastructure, roads, bridges, ports, whatever. If you actually include broadband, electric vehicles, if you expand a little bit more, or um, you know, more like um, futuristic transportation inequities, throw that in there, and you basic uh, transportation resilience, throw that in there, you only come up with 30% of the total bill that can be even in the most generously described way as, as, you know, as funding infrastructure. 
So the the larger you know issue is that um, what is the role of the federal government in playing in all of this, and then also how is the divide going to be in resources between rural and urban areas. Yeah, right. It, and that's, and that seems to be something that you focused on quite a bit because it seems like every Democratic administration, I mean, they're talking about like racist roads, right? And, oh, which is- God. I mean, rural America has been neglected, forgotten, and ignored. And yet 44% of urban dwellers travel on rural roads. And the predominance of bridges in serious need of repairs is in rural America. And then rural America experiences a disproportionately high rate of fatalities and accidents. So from just a safety point of view, we need to be paying more attention to rural infrastructure, or at least parity, equity. Rural, I come from rural America, Kentucky. We're not looking for a handout. We're just looking for our fair share of federal resources. And in the Obama administration, for example, 80% of discretionary grants went to urban America. Is that right? I didn't know that. Absolutely. And let me give you another example that currently exists now about the disparity. So look at Amtrak. Now, we know that I love Amtrak. I mean, I take Excella from Washington to, you know, oh. to New York to see my right. dad and my family. But um, the current budget for Amtrak is a billion dollars, okay? A billion dollars. And this new proposal is going to increase the budget to 80 billion dollars that's, that's insane how do you even do that i don't even understand how you can so what they that. say supposedly and again i'm not criticizing but i'm just saying these are the questions that need to be asked so how is this 80 billion dollars going to be used and it is said the administration said that this 80 billion dollars will be used to build out rail service in long distance routes in the rest of the country now, if that is indeed the case, long-distance service has never been profitable. So if Amtrak is going to be building up its long-distance service, then does it mean that this $80 billion is not a one-time event, but a multi-year event, probably unto perpetuity, because long-term, long-distance rail loses money all the time, and it is continuously subsidized. What I think is more likely to happen is that this $80 billion will be used by Amtrak's Northeast Corridor, that's between Washington and Boston, and improvements to the nine projects called Gateway Projects around New York and New Jersey. That's that includes amazing. Hudson Tunnel, Penn Station, Sawtooth Bridge, Portal Bridge South. I mean, basically, these are, you know, you throw an East River Tunnel, that's about $40 billion. Now, the cost estimates are not totally accurate because some of them are uncosted, and the cost escalation continues. In 2009, the cost for the Hudson Tunnel was $7 billion. It is now likely to cost between $12 and $15 billion. And with the cost escalation, this administration is not doing anything to shorten the permitting process. So let's say, let's say with, the, with the funding, so that's about like 40%, 50% of the $80 billion is going to go to North New York and New Jersey. Yeah. And then... After that, it's going to go to Maryland because there are two major Maryland projects that are right along the Amtrak Northeast Corridor. That's a BMP tunnel and Susquehanna Bridge. That's probably another $5, $10 billion, although the BMP tunnel has not yet been costed, but it's going to be multi-billion dollars. Then you've got Virginia. You've got the Union Station project to Richmond. And so that's going to be 
probably another $10 billion. I mean, the, the thing that, but that's, the whole $80 billion is gone. It's and gone. It's going, to the, it's going to two of the richest states in our country. <laughs> New York, New Jersey, maybe Maryland and Virginia. Four, four states. So I want, talk about urban-rural disparity. This is, an, an prime, this is an example. And again, I'm not criticizing Amtrak. I love Amtrak. I love going on Amtrak. But these are the kinds of questions which need to be asked. Yeah, no, it's a really, really good point. And I hope as this thing progresses that we can ask you more questions on it because you understand this stuff like nobody else. There's one, one more substantive question before I get to our final three, Secretary. And this, this one, I don't know that there is an answer for. But uh, are we ever going to have self-driving cars? Or is that just sort of a, a fantasy that ultimately is not going to come to fruition anywhere outside of like Menlo Park? Oh, no, I think we're definitely going to have it. I think we're going to have autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars. But I think what's going to be difficult is uh, right now we have level two self-driving cars. And they can follow the white lines on a highway and uh, drive, you know, without uh, the driver having to handle the wheel. But to get to level five, where it's 100 uh, percent autonomous in crowded, urban, congested areas, I think that would take that would take much longer because basically the software has to replicate the human brain and the human brain in all of its beauty is incredibly complex. Mm-hmm. And so that last step will take a long time. But I think we're going to see different kinds of autonomy and there's so much uh, innovation and energy in this mobility space. I'm really quite excited about it. No, that's neat. Well, you presided over a lot of it and did a heck of a job. We Thank you for your service. I'm going to get to the three big questions here, Secretary, that I candidly, uh, for all the years that I've known you, still don't know the answer to. The first one is, your last meal on earth, what would it be? Steak and french fries. <laughs> and that's because it's so typically American. It is a quintessential American meal. I love it. Steak and french fries. Who doesn't love it? Um, if, if you weren't involved in this, in, in public service at all, what do you think you, you would be doing with your life? I'm actually a very shy person, and I'm actually um, very self-effacing. So I would just like to live in a very quiet place and eat bonbons. <laughs> There's nobody that believes that. <laughs> There's nobody that believes that. There isn't a, a, a single moment that I think you would be quiet and eating bonbons. <laughs> Third question, which I already know the answer to, I, I think, is what motivates Elaine Chow more, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? The agony of defeat, without question. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't doubt that one for a minute. <laughs> Listen, I've enjoyed this so much. I hope we can do it again. This is, um, you, like I said earlier, you are a, an inspiration to a lot of young people and what you've done in your career. And I, I know you'll keep fighting the good fight because you don't know how to do it any other way. So uh, until next time on Ruthless, just thank you for coming. Not at all. Thanks so much for having me. And I love your program. I've been spreading it around to all my family. So there are 17 <laughs> new, new listeners right away. Excellent. Excellent. Secretary Chow, everybody. Thank you. Great interview. Uh, But but one of the things that I um, think too many people blow past with Elaine is just how rock solid conservative she's been. I mean, she's really held down 
the conservative side of whatever agency she's in charge of. I mean, you know, for example, she hired more Federalist Society lawyers at the Department of Labor than they had at DOJ during the Bush administration. Hell yeah. Right. I mean, she, this is somebody who just gets it, but is also not a, a shameless self promoter. And so, you know, has never been sort of circulated in conservative circles that way, but she deserves an immense amount of credit. Do you remember that, um, that video that came out a few years ago when some of these like left-wing activists were trying to hassle McConnell, you know, out at a dinner oh, yeah. or something. And Elaine Chow might've been the scariest person I've ever seen in that video. Like ready to just like fist fight people. It was I incredible. Mean, I think, you know, part of the credit for where that comes from is you got to reiterate, this is a woman who was born in Taiwan to family who had fled from the Chinese communist government so it's no secret why she would hate communism so much and has done so much to uh, further conservative causes. Totally. That's totally right. Well, anyway, I hope everybody enjoyed. And that was, uh, I would say, another banger of an episode. Uh, I'm really excited about the guest list we got co- uh, coming up, folks. Yeah, you won't we, 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 got, we got a guest lined up who has been very heavily requested. That's all I'm going to, the only spoiler I'm going to give on that. And uh, another one that I think is going to be a big newsmaker when that one drops. So keep that in mind, folks. Uh, we appreciate all, all, all our listeners. The numbers keep going up. Keep going up, folks. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Uh, let's keep these numbers rolling. We're already in, I think, we, yeah, we've hit the top 1% of podcasts on Earth. Hell, let's just go for the top podcasts on Earth here. Uh, <laughs> thank you it. so much to all our listeners. But uh, until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless.